while not universally the case, there is a tendency Protestant churches that before they kind of explicitly give up on their own church's confession, before that happens, they usually give up on putting their ministers accountable to them. Hmm. Usually give up on discipline first, right? So oh. it's you still formally confess these things, but you're not going to give a guy a hard time because he doesn't. But that's oftentimes the first step towards kind of fully forsaking confession of the road. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host, and we are back for another Credo Alliance episode, bringing together some of the best theologians today. And our goal is simple, but I hope inspirational. We're trying to encourage the next generation to retrieve classical Christianity and all of its beauty for the sake of Reformation in the church today. And I am uh, so glad to be back with three others that you know well. Scott Swain, who's president of RTS Orlando. Uh, J.V. Fesco, who's a professor of theology and history at RTS Jackson. And of course, uh, Fred Sanders, professor of theology at Tory Honors College. Uh, good to have you all back with me. And I think it might be helpful to just help some of our listeners understand that classical theology is actually much bigger than they might think at first glance. And sometimes when they encounter the doctrine of the church, classical theology uh, doesn't really have much to do with it. But when we think about just something as basic as a worship or liturgy, the corporate reading of scripture, or perhaps in some churches even saying, say, the, a creed together, it could be the Apostles' Creed, it could be the Nicene Creed, all of these facets and more, and I should mention even preaching and worship at large, all of these facets raise a question, how should classical theology frame the life and the soul of the church? And let's zero in a little bit more because in my experience at least, the question that quickly follows is, so are you saying that we should be creedal people? And is that, or is it contradictory, or is it actually consistent with, say, our commitment to Scripture informing what we do and who we are? What do we mean when we talk about creeds in the life of the church? Maybe we could just start off with I mean, I know that we, we often talk at 10,000 feet, but each one of us are in specific local churches. What does that look like for you? Is there what we could call a mindfulness or an attentiveness or an awareness that we are a creedal people? And, and what is, how does that manifest itself in your churches? I mean, I think sometimes it, it, in some circles, being a creedal people can sound very strange, but I think it shouldn't. If we don't, 
feel uncomfortable talking about being a baptized people, then I don't think we should feel uncomfortable talking about being a creedal people insofar as the same gospel which is claimed to us at baptism is the gospel that we speak back in our confession and confession of faith. And the creed is nothing other than just a formal of the church's confession and profession of faith. It's the believer's pledge of allegiance to the triune God before it's the subject matter of a theology lecture or it's a standard against which we measure false teaching before it's even a guide for the interpretation of scripture. And so if we believed, therefore we spoke, as the psalmist says, then nothing could be more natural for the community to express its faith in a creed. Yeah, and I think that's something that we so do regularly in every other aspect of the Christian life, and especially in worship. You know, we pray scriptural truth in our own words. We preach messages from scripture in our own words. So it shouldn't be alien to us to summarize the teaching of scripture in our own words, but to do so in concert with the historic church. Yeah, I think that's good. I'm in the free church tradition and we, we don't have, we don't recite the creed as a regular part of the sort of liturgy or worship service every week, but we do recite it together occasionally. And of course, if you get even further out into sort of low church settings, uh, some of the places where I have some fellowship, even to specify for those churches, you really need a doctrinal statement. I I'm talking about small churches that have like fundamentalists actually in their name still here in the LA region. Just to specify to them, I'm not even saying print the Apostles' Creed in your hymnal if you've got a hymnal. Though if they do have a hymnal, it generally has the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in it. <laughs> not sure if they can find it. But even just to say, listen, you can't keep it a secret what you think the Bible means, and you can't just say, I believe what's in the Bible. A lot of people who are wrong say they believe what's in the Bible. You need to pony up about a one-page summary of what you take the Bible to mean specifically. And then, you know, from there, you can start working out. And when you have a, a local church statement of faith or a denominational confession of some kind, to clarify, did you mean for this to replace the ancient Christian creeds, or is this like a a supplement and a way of putting it into effect here and now, like what, what is it you're doing by saying what you believe? So I think all those pieces have to be in place in one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I'm also a pastor at Emmaus Church here in Kansas City. We have a, a plurality of other pastors as well, so I'm not alone there. But several years ago, we uh, started to uh, introduce the Apostles' Creed and even the Nicene Creed into the church service. And so we said, well, let's try for once a month and let's just see how the people do. And, you know, at first, maybe the first time, it took a lot of buildup, right? But one of, one of us got up there to say, what are we doing right now? Because yeah. <laughs> some of them have never done that before. But once we had done that, said the Nicene Creed once or twice together, all of a sudden I noticed something and just almost observing from the, you know, the back row. And there was a bit of excitement, even dare I say confidence. And I should add the word comfort because one of the things we would say to the people is, listen, even though you're standing here saying this it, in a real way, 
our ecclesiology, it's not selfish. We believe in the church Catholic, the church universal, that is. And so you're linking arms with brothers and sisters down through the ages. And that should give you some comfort that, hey, we do believe in the same God, the same Christ, the same gospel. I think when they started to think through it from that lens, though maybe for some it's still a little strange, I think on the whole, it, it really started to change things for us as a church. You know, we, we're currently moving in the direction of a more robust doctrinal, confessional, you know, document that we hope will really help people. But I think this was, ended up being maybe even accidentally a pivotal step, for, at least for our church. So I, let me throw this back at John, because John, you've written a book on this. So I know you have, I know you have something to say. I'm going to pick on you. Can we even go so far, John, to say, rightly understood, uh, pastors and church members and those who are in seminaries training pastors and, and perhaps future church members and that sort of thing, they need to understand not just creedal mindfulness looks like, but creedal accountability. I know that's a word that uh, a lot of people don't like be, because of what it sounds like, but what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we go about this after modernism when that word has a special distaste in the mouths of many? I think that, you know, if you look at the scriptures, say, for example, something like Paul confronts over not only his conduct, but ultimately the, you know, his understanding of doctrine that was driving that conduct, you see accountability there. And perhaps also you could say that we see accountability with Paul as he's giving his farewell speech to the, the Ephesian elders, warning them that later wolves would come in among them or in Jude telling them to, you know, steer clear and even expel the false teachers. The Bible regularly emphasizes this point that, you know, not only do we profess the faith once delivered to the saints, but we have a moral obligation to protect it. And it's not just to protect it from the outside uh, world, uh, but also from within the church as well. You know, when, when Paul says in Galatians 1.8, if we or an angel from heaven should teach any other gospel than, than that which we delivered to you, let him be an anathema, I say again. You know, so he says, it, even if we depart, you know, if we, the ones who originally shared this message with you, so he's saying, hold us accountable. And if in Acts 16, where Paul is preaching to the Bereans, if they went home and checked Paul's teachings against the authority of scripture, all of those things tell us that you know, with our creedal and, and confessional summaries of the teaching of Scripture, we have them as kind of an index to measure not only everybody else's fidelity in the church, and, and in my context, you know, Scott's context, the, the, the creedal fidelity and, and confessional fidelity of the teaching and ruling elders, the church officers, as well as by discipleship, the church members, but ultimately the church's collective fidelity ultimately to the scriptures because the scriptures are supposed to be our chief authority in these things so as much as we don't like it you know it's necessary because we're sinful 
And I liken it, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be quoting this because it's vastly inferior to Star Wars. Yeah. But, you know, it always bothered me in Star Trek as a kid that you never knew one of the members of the crew always seemed to turn against the other members, you know, was taken <laughs> over or, you know, just, you know, did started doing wacky things, whether it was Kirk, whether it was Spock, you know, there was always somebody turning against the crew. And I've often thought that's life in the church. <laughs> you know, right? you have to be aware that there's always going to be somebody. And sadly, I've seen it happen in my own ministry where people that I know and love, you know, start teaching bad things. And you have to be willing to put the scriptures and the triune God first and friendship second. Mm -hmm. And it means holding them accountable. And it's a very sad thing when that happens. But that's what, you know, that's what God, our triune God calls us to do. Yeah, the Deuteronomy has a lot to say about that. Your neighbor, your friend, your loved one. That's about both prophets. The loyalty is to God and to his word, right? And I do think it bears now at least, you know, 16th, 17th centuries and beyond that while not universally the case, there is a tendency Protestant churches that before they kind of explicitly give up on their own church's confession, before that happens, they usually give up on holding their ministers accountable to them. Mm -hmm. Usually give up on discipline first, right? So wow. it's you still formally confess these things, but you're not going to give a guy a hard time because he doesn't. But that's oftentimes the first step towards kind of fully forsaken confession on the road. You know, I, I always describe the creed as a kind of a placeholder for the content of scripture, right? Like when I say, I believe the creed, what I mean is I believe what God has revealed in the Bible. And here's my accountability index for what I mean by what I say. But it also strikes me, and as a solo scripture kind of a person, I the only reason I don't say that every time is because I like my sentences to be short sometimes, right? So I could just say, I believe what the creed says. But it's also a placeholder, it strikes me, for whether somebody in fact understands. Because you could say, I believe the creed and treat it as if it were its own authority, which is, of course, is not its own authority. But you could also say, I believe the creed and not, in fact, grasp what's there. I taught through the three creeds recently with undergrads here at Biola, and some of them were astonished. They would have said they believed the creed, but they were astonished when I just kept rubbing their nose in eternal generation. And they said, well, that's one of the theories, right? I said, no. I'm not trying to preemptively declare that it's absolutely right and you're not allowed to think about it. What I'm saying is this is the Christian answer. It's like right here in cold print in the fourth century, people considered many theories and said, this is the correct interpretation of scripture. So now the question is, you got the creed. It's a placeholder for the question, do you understand it? Or, or use another example in a Christian university con context, I'll sometimes review doctrinal statements for people who are being hired or promoted or given tenure or something. And as they work through the statement of faith of the university, sometimes they'll just want to answer, I agree. Sub point two, I agree. I agree. And I have to return it and press and say, I'm glad you agree, but I also need to know if you understand it. Like yeah. say back in your own language, what you think this says and cool. I'm really thrilled that you agree. But I, in some ways, I don't care if you agree, if I don't yet know if you understand. Because if you just agreed to the bare form of authority, because it's good to have a job, 
but you don't in fact understand it or haven't thought about it, well, that doesn't have a lot of value. You know, credo means I believe. Well, and, and the, a lot of uh, it, kind of the other side of it, the fact that a creed is a secondary document, right? Right. Blows from scripture. The other side of that, it's also teleologically ordered. Like it's the mm. point of scripture, but you would believe it's teaching and then profess it along with all the saints. Right? Yeah. And so this is where if someone starts wanting to kind of voiced the authority of scripture over against the creed, you almost get in the situation, you know, Jesus talks about man tells the servant to do something and he says, I'll do it. He doesn't do it. He tells another servant to do it. He doesn't do it in first, but he repents and does it. He says, who will obey, right? And there's this way, okay, you believe in the authority of scripture. That's well and good. What do you mean by that? What faith do you embrace? And do you embrace it with others? Confess that faith. So, yeah, the ability to say, here's what I mean when I affirm the creed is really, it is a test of biblical authority. For all that secondary nature, it's a sign that you have embraced the authority of scripture. At least that's yeah, realize, oh, it's not actually a media's going for the big picture, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm not declaring that I am correct in my interpretation of every verse I've ever thought about and the ones I have not yet thought about. It's saying that I've read that book, the Bible. I've thought hard about what it says and made some important decisions about what those mean. And if it's on an index card, it's really remarkable. That's right. I actually make my students memorize the Nicene Creed. And then when they enter into their second theology class, they turn to the definition of Chalcedon and, and they memorize that definition as well. And one of the things I say to them, and Scott, you alluded to this a minute ago, when you said, well, I forget the word you just said, teleological, is that what you said? That, okay, you know, Fred, you said, okay, we're agreeing, but then we're understanding. And then Scott, you moved it along a step further. One thing I also do is say, this is also doxological because let's just take the most serious circumstance, right? Where you get something on a matter of orthodoxy, incredibly wrong. And you persist and double down and dig your heels in. Well, in the history of the church, that was called heresy. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I don't say to my students, you know, you're going to be a heretic. But I do say to them, if you, and this is where that pastoral leadership element, Scott, that you mentioned is, is uh, incredibly important. If you go into the church and you lead people in the wrong direction, uh, it's not just information. Um, it, it's not just whether you agree or disagree, kind of when you come into membership and you check that box and you move on, it's far more than that. Uh, it it does, not always, but it can even affect worship. And that's where the Old Testament has a lot to say about what is true worship, what is idolatry. And when we look at Scripture, Scripture doesn't seem to divorce worship from, well, like we talked about in our last episode, the knowledge of God that that gives us this great prize, the beatific vision, seeing God. Those two things are held together in the end. I hope, and I mean, that I know sometimes that can sound so serious, but when we are talking about something as significant as like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, it is that serious in many respects. Fred, can I come back to you for a second? Because you threw out eternal generation. So, no, you didn't throw it out. You threw I it out. I didn't in. throw it out. <laughs> Put it into play. 
Yeah. So let's just take let's just take a test case. Okay. It maybe this will help some listeners who are trying to bring theory into practice here. Let's take the Nicene Creed. You mentioned it, eternal generation. I've had that experience too, where maybe a student or churchgoer is like, oh, so this is one theory. <laughs> like, no, th this is actually, th they're saying this because they believe this is Bible. And what do we mean by eternal generation? And why, what do we not mean by eternal generation? Maybe we should just start there. Yeah, well, in keeping with the idea of creed as an attempt to summarize and specify the proper interpretation of scripture. It, the non-biblical phrase eternal generation is an attempt to capture the fact that the sonship of Christ is an eternal reality in God. It's not, you know, the word son gets used a lot of different ways in scripture. They're all great. I'd love to do a whole, you know, catalog of all the ways sonship applies to Christ, but the root kind of sonship that defines his personal identity is that he is the eternal son of the eternal father and that the, the relation he stands into the father is a relation of eternal sonship eternal filiation eternal begetting eternal generation the words we use at least in english keep shifting under us and sounding strange in different ways but the core is to say He's not son because he's born of Mary. He's not son because he obeys. He's not son because any of the other seven or eight true things we do affirm. He's son because he is eternally in this relation to the first person of the Trinity. Now, and everything else, you can build all the rest of it back on there. Yes, he's yeah. born of Mary. Yes, incarnate. He obeys the command of the Father, etc. Now, it's no secret that some evangelicals and our listeners will be aware of this we've discussed this down through the years at different times and but it's no secret that some evangelicals uh who hold to and call different things but an eternal functional subordination of the son will try to take that functional subordination and by it they don't just mean say the incarnation but they will try to say that actually we should locate that with eternal generation itself. Different language is used. Sometimes they'll say it flows from eternal generation or it makes sense of eternal generation. But one of the points that they will argue is that, well, yes, the tradition may have said that eternal generation alone is what distinguishes the sun, but actually it's eternal generation and this functional subordination. So there's these two distinguishing marks, and it's so important that they might, they will go so far to say, well, you don't have a son or a father without this. Hmm. Maybe this is a good test case. Uh, I, I know some of our listeners, you know, these, these wheels are turning. Uh, maybe this is a good test case because when we talk about even the Nicene language for eternal generation, begotten, not made, true God of true God, a light from light, et cetera. What do we mean and what do we not mean? Because even though we have the creed, we find ourselves in, now in this challenging, I, I suppose every generation does at some point, but, but we find ourselves now in a challenging situation. We're, we're now having to actually use more words to explain what the creed does and does not mean. So, so let me just come back and say, like, what do we mean when we confess the Nicene Creed, what do we mean and not mean then by eternal generation? Like, is this a legitimate move or not? What What do you think? 
This is to, to everyone, by the way. Let me, let me try. Let me try a, a go at it in, in terms of what I think is sometimes going on with folks who want to insist on internal function subordination as being of the essence of a father-son relation. I think at best what they're wanting to say is we were taught to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but those three personal names are a true revelation of your guys. That's not speaking yes and no to us, he's revealing who he really is. And so then they're going and then say, okay, so sonship, that's what distinguishes a person of the journey. Then they're saying, that, well, anytime you think of the meaning of what sonship is, always includes subordination to a father. And there's something about that does have a kind of an immediate plausibility because you think about, you know, children obey your parents. Honor your father and mother, all those kinds of things. But what the fourth century fathers argued, and what the church almost universally has confessed on this thing, is that no, actually, a son's obedience to the father is not essential to the meaning of sonship. And I actually think you can't even make the case that it's even essential to the meaning of sonship, even on a human level. There's an interesting passage where Solomon's kind of transitioning from David to Solomon to kingship. And there are those who ask, who, who kind of pray that Solomon's throne, in other words, his authority, would be greater than David. Whoa, that doesn't fit the kind of son is always subordinate to the father, but even on the human level. And so what the, the fourth century fathers wanted to say, the essence of sonship, right, is a relation to the father, that the son originates from a father. And then that the son shares the same nature as the father, right? There's other ways of originating things. A builder originates a house, but a house is not of the same nature as the builder. But when you have a father originating a son, the nature of that kind of relation is a sharing of the same nature. Yeah. When you translate the meaning of sonship from the human level to the divine level, you then have to also remove everything that belong, belongs to creaturely perfection. Right. So this is why, I mean, it's interesting. I think we've talked about this before. Like there's a sense of which son is a better title. Bear with me. Than even the phrase eternal generation. Oh yeah. Because the title son doesn't contain intrinsically any creaturely meaning. Whereas generation, the concept includes like coming to be, it includes a process. And so when we use generation, that's why you have to add journal to it, right? You have to say, well, yeah, yeah take away any, don't take away any process. Fred was talking earlier about eschatology, like you can't tell, or the beatific vision, you can't tell a story about the beatific vision. You can't tell a story about eternal generation, yeah. right? Father and son, and Thomas is really big on this, and kind of debate with Bonaventure about what is the defining feature of the father versus the son, right? Father and son name a complete relation. Right? A perfect relationship. It's not being born, being produced. The son is the completed product, right? And so there's a sense at which even it says the son, it, it includes eternal generation in it. And that's why we have to, to have it. But we've got to do all kinds of other qualifications as well. The essence of it is that he's the father eternally and shares the same nature. But we yeah. process, we're not talking about a coming to be. We're not talking about division as this happens at the mutual level. We have to 
it's my favorite friend Sanders quoting Nazianzus. You know, Greg Nazianzus dash Fred Sanders. The idea will die, so the doctrine of eternal duration, but he'll kill you if you claim you can explain it. Yeah, it's exactly this amount of information is what's communicated by the biblical use of the word son. And one way to talk about what you're doing there with kind of working with the revealed name son is if you take it as absolutely true, then you have to think about it absolutely, right? And that's the guide to what you take out of it. You don't like, well, I gosh, I have a father and I have a son, so I'm like relatively father and son in different senses <laughs> at different times. My father has passed away, etc. You know, I wasn't a father until I had a son. I'm just kind of relatively stepping in and out of the role of father and son in a strange historical manner. But the son is absolutely son. This also is why there's no God the mother to talk about, because yeah. human production is human reproduction and the sexual, the organs of sexual reproduction are divided among the sexes. This is not the case with absolute sonship. And so that's why you do get a, the non-biblical phrase, eternal generation, which I should say is just an attempt to turn the names father and son into verbs, frankly, yeah. right? They're eternal verbs, but it's like, well, how do we know the father's father of the son? Because he fathers him. <laughs> well, in case that's all <laughs> we're doing there. Continued active that verb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In contemporary English, there's really no functioning word for how a father brings forth a child. In the ancient world, we used to have, well, moms give birth, they birth children, and dads beget children. But beget is now just a Bible word. Nobody uses it in other, any other context except biblical genealogies and the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's just over time, it's become a, a technical holy word. Um, we could say sire, but that's only for racehorses. So that's going to get you looked at funny. <laughs> we could say I father my son, but that now sounds like the relational psychological process of raising a child, not producing the child. So we are left in this zone right now where it's probably a bad cultural indicator that we don't have a word for the relation of a father and a son. But that's what we're trying to affirm here is that is what is absolutely true of the persons in whose name we are baptized. Yeah. John, you're very quiet and I got to, I'm going to draw you into this. You're, you're not going to get out of this. Okay. We were just talking about creedal accountability. John, you've thought a lot about creeds. When we think about something like EFS, how serious is this? How, how serious should we take it? What's at stake? What, how do we move forward? Yeah, it's, it's a serious mistake. It's a serious error. Uh, however, sincerely proponents of, you know, of the idea are, but we don't measure doctrinal fidelity by sincerity, but by biblical fidelity or borrow John Webster's phrasing, you know, how well we trace the lines of scripture and retrace those lines and, you know, reflect what the text says. So in that sense, I think the reason that it's such a problematic error is that at its core, what proponents of EFS do is that they are pulling the economy into the ontology of the Trinity, or they're taking the contingent temporal creation and redemption and they're making it a part of who the triune God is eternally. And by doing that, they make the creation and redemption a necessary part of who God is, which therefore means that in some sense, we are God. You know, it's a form of pantheism. And 
I don't know, maybe it's the shots fired, but it sounds more like Hegel than it does, you know, the Apostle John. It sounds, you know, more pantheistic than it sounds like Nicaea. And so it's important. And I had an instance in, you know, in my uh, ministry where we had a young man coming up for licensure and he was, he, you know, I knew there was trouble when we asked him for his exceptions to the Westminster standards. And he gave us a document that was 13 pages long. And I thought, oh man, this is going to take a while. And one of those exceptions he took was to the eternal generation of the son. It was 18 months presbytery meetings and the presbytery finally came around to seeing, no, yeah, you're right. We can't, you know, license this young man, you know, as sincere as he was, as great as he was. And he was pretty staunch about affirming it. And so the fact, though, this is why this is so important is because my wife walked into that meeting and sat down. And this was, I think, the third meeting that we had where we this was, you know, going back and forth because we were trying to work with him as a credentials committee, trying to bring him along. And so that's why it was three meetings long. And so this would come up. And so when she walked in, she sat down and we had a break and she said, uh, oh, man, I didn't know you guys were debating the eternal generation of the sun. And I was like, wow. Hey, that's I'm impressed. I, you know, I, I didn't realize that you had read up on this. And she said, no, the the guy sitting in front of me had Googled what is the eternal generation of the sun. And I was just like, oh, my word. Oh, my. oh man, well, that would get a good Pauline Oive. Oh. You know, so that's how important this stuff is. But yet that's there's a lot of folks in the church who don't understand what it's all about. Yeah. And so everything, I just would want to say a hearty amen to everything that Fred and, and Scott have said about this. And frankly, everything that all three of you have put into print. And in my opinion, graciously, but pointedly, and I think of a footnote in Scott's book on the Trinity, for example, that, you know, you kind of you name names and, and you, you talk about the importance of this issue. So, yeah, it's really important. Well, if I can jump in. Well, John, right there, and this is the case, talking about church accountability, talking about not wanting to put teachers or public teachers up, do not affirm these cardinal doctrines. This is a place where you don't want to, we don't want to, you don't want to sound like, you know, here we are wanting to make EFS the whipping boy of, of evangelism from kind of a position of a high boards. And this is one of those places where in a sense, it's our own fault that we're in this position where you can have young men coming toward nation and have this mistake. And so what all, as always is the case with kind of the discipline of the church, accountability of the church, the best defense is a good offense. Hmm. Really the, the call of the day is, is yes, we need to make sure folks are not teaching these things and we need to know on the front end, right? Spelling out the logic of the gospel is just summarized in the creed, expressed in the creed. I think, you know, one of Fred's great gifts, I think, I think just consistently talking about how things like eternal duration are at the center of the gospel. Mm. And, and if we're addressing these in terms of a good offense, it, it makes the defensive side, like the disciplinary side, we're in better position when we get there, aren't we? Mm. Uh, that's the best way, to, I think, to, to address these things is recover good catechesis. Yeah. Yeah, I do think when people kind of yawn about the doctrine of the Trinity, when people affirm it, but yawn about it, it's because they have this sense that like the basic idea of the Trinity is there's three of them and they're all God. 
And if someone sort of got that view at the popular level, you know, they're not, they're not intellectually interested in lots of things and they're a church member and that's kind of how it comes out. You go, well, okay. But you certainly hope that they can grow from that to get a more accurate picture of what the Bible has revealed. And certainly that the teachers know what's up, right? That when they go ask somebody about it, they're going to run into someone who is well aware that when you draw that diagram, label the three sides, and then affirm that they're all fully God, you haven't actually, for one thing, you're not speaking a directly biblical idiom because you, you, <laughs> you want to call them father and son and say that one of the things revealed that really matters is this relation. If you just put the three on the board and say they're all God, you have not even specified the relation. And then over the generations, there can grow up this idea that like, well, I guess there's different theories about how they're related, but as long as they're all God, we're good. Like, no, I don't want to break your heart, but you've not even started doing the doctrine of the Trinity yet. Yeah. So that's barely even a placeholder for how to read the Bible about what God is saying about himself. Mm. Sec second half of that Warfield essay. I, I want to, to just add one thing because I, you all have said it so well. Um, but if I could add one thing, um, you know, John, you were you talking that, I mean, that's, I, you've mentioned that story to me. I think we were, you stopped by one time on campus and we were right. talking and you mentioned that story to me and we, I just couldn't believe it, but then I could believe it. But I just want to say to some of our listeners who might be Baptist, uh, it might be tempted to think, oh, this doesn't apply to me. This is a oh, this is a Presbyterian issue. It absolutely does apply to you. Um, I, I think a little history here is good. We might do well to remember that uh, the Baptist John Gill, you know, that quote that, Scott, you quoted Fred earlier. Uh, I think John Gill felt the same way, you know, when you mentioned Fred about dying for eternal generation, but kill anyone who, you know, tried to, you know, Stay more than that, yeah. Yeah, I think John Gill resonated, but in pastoral, it wasn't just theology. I mean, it, in pastoral ministry, he put his money where his mouth was. It, at one point, his, it, your story, John, reminds me of this. At one point, through a lot of stress and labor and and all kinds of uh, pressure, and uh, he did discipline uh, a member of his church on this very issue, on the Trinity and eternal generation. It was that serious. And, and it was painful, of course. I mean, when is discipline not painful if you actually are a you know genuine, caring pastor? But it was that serious for him. So I just want to say, uh, it, just my little two cents here to, to my Baptist listeners out there, you're not off the hook. What each of these men has said applies just as much to you as well. Goodness, I was I, I know Fred's gonna be so upset with me afterwards because I was hoping we get to the Holy Spirit. And I know Fred's sitting there saying, I've written a book on the Holy Spirit. But we we'll have to end and maybe we maybe this will be we'll have to all read Fred's book and then uh we'll be ready to talk about the Holy Spirit at some point. But we're looking forward to your work on the Holy Spirit, Fred. Uh to our listeners. Um, each of these theologians have written on the Trinity. And so if you're new to this discussion, maybe you're not new, but some of the things we've said have really stirred some things up in your own heart and mind. Can I just say to you, just go to Amazon, type in their names, look for their books on the Trinity. They've each written books on the Trinity. You, would, you will benefit so much 
In fact, read them all, but you will benefit so much from what they've said. And I think that you will walk away, you know, as C.S. Lewis once said, he found himself feeling far more eager to worship God when he was reading a tough bit of theology with a pencil in his hand. And I think you will find that to be the case with each of these theologians as well. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.